Exodus 6, 3-8. And I appeared, the Lord says, unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob. This is the Lord speaking to Moses. By the name of God Almighty, but by my name, Jehovah, was I not known to them. And I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, wherein they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. Wherefore say I unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will rid you out of their bondage, and I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgment. And I will take you to me for a people, and I will be to you a God, and ye shall know that I am the Lord your God, which bringeth you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land concerning the which I did swear to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I will give it you for, for heritage. I am the Lord. And so he ends that passage. This is what he's telling his man Moses after he's spoken to him in the burning bush and what, what to tell the children of Israel when he goes back. Now we've, we've already mentioned that. When he went and first speak, spoke to the... He and Aaron went and spoke to the children of Israel. They gathered them together, the heads of the tribes. And that the people initially were so excited. They, you know, they believed. There was excitement. Something's happening. God's heard our pr prayer. He sent Moses and Aaron. And He's going to do it. Well, then they go and they speak. To, Moses and Aaron go and speak to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, of course, wants to know where's your credentials, basically. And so... Uh, God, uh, Moses begins to produce the, the things that God told him to. Throw down your rod in the, in the presence of Pharaoh. We know it became a serpent. And then, but the magicians that were standing by of Egypt did the same thing and turned their rods. Somehow they mimicked what the Lord had done. And Moses' rod or his serpent swallowed up their serpents. But Pharaoh did not at all respond to them and say, you know what, I'm going to let your people, the people go. The, the plea was, let our people go three days journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to our God. And he's, he's called us to do that. And Pharaoh, in his pride and arrogance, we talked about this, was not about to let them go. And he, he was a deity himself. Who is this God? He'd never even heard of the, God, the Lord Jehovah until that moment, probably. And he, in, in his mind, he doesn't know God. And the God, this is the God of a bunch of slaves. And I'm going to do what he says. And he didn't let them go. And now he increased the burdens on the people. We know this, the, the count. He said, you make the same number of bricks as you used to make, but I'm not giving you the materials to make the bricks. You go gather straw and make the same amount of bricks you did before. And then when they didn't, they were severely beaten. It was not pleasant at all. We talk about this. I'll say it again. You might be sitting here tonight, tonight and say amen. Things oftentimes get worse before they get better. They, they went from this initial excitement. Oh, God, good. God's going to deliver us. They thought maybe that night they were just going to walk out. You know, like, or maybe He's going to kill all the Egyptians. Or They didn't know. But uh, they were excited. But that excitement turned to like this very severe discouragement. Then they started lashing out at Moses and Aaron and saying, you're the cause. God's going to judge you because He's, you've made our, our Savior to stink. 
you know, in, in Pharaoh's nostrils, like he, he can't stand us. Well, they already couldn't stand them. They were already slaves. But I would agree that the, the severity of the situation was increased. And so the people have rejected, it looks like at this point, Moses and Aaron, and they circumvent them who God has called to be their leaders. And they go around them and they make their own plea, not for, for being released so much as just, you know, why are you making the burden so hard? You want us to make the same number of bricks. So they get some leaders of Israel, not Moses and Aaron, and, and they're rejected as well. Pharaoh says, you're idle, you're idle. You've got too much time on your hands. And therefore, you're saying we want to go like a vacation to go out in the wilderness. And so get back to your burdens is what he told me. And, and that's just that's just what what happens to us without Christ. That's just until Christ sets us free. That's just what we are. Just get back to your burdens. Satan just says, get back to the life you're living. There's no real liberty. You can go to church or whatever. There's no real redemption. There's no real freedom from your alcoholism or your drug addiction or your sin or your depression or your fear. Get, just get back to what you were doing. You know, that's kind of how I feel about it. And so every man of God or woman of God that is in the plan of God as Moses was faces discouragement. They face severe discouragement. If you read the biography of Charles Spurgeon or D.L. Moody or, or George Mueller or uh, uh, William Carey, I'm thinking who's the father of modern missions in India, read some of their, uh, their biographies and read about their lives. It wasn't just, we know the highlights of, of Hudson Taylor's life. We know the highlights how many people the Lord might have used D.L. Moody to win to the Lord? We know the highlights, okay? Charles Spurgeon called the Prince of Preachers and, and so forth. But we don't know uh, that, that every, that the discouragements that they faced. And it's, they've become popular, a lot of, popular in Christianity sometimes later. It's a lot of times when they're living their lives, it may not be so wonderful. Or we don't know the things that God had to bring them through to produce that great fruit out of their lives. They went through some testings, severe testings and trials. We should not think that we are exempt from that or any different than that. That is God's way. That is God's plan. He has chosen to uh, refine us in the fires of what? Affliction. I've chosen to refine you. He is refining us, amen? That your faith when it's tried may come through as pure gold. Trying the furnace of fire, right? That it would appear at His glory and His appearing, it would come forth as pure gold. But He's chosen to do that through afflictions. It's not because He's cruel. It's because it drives us to Him like nothing else will. Our afflictions drive us to Him like nothing else will. And this initial excitement, and then to, we're going to be delivered, and God's going to use us, and we're going to do miracles, and He's going to bring us out. By the stretched out arm of God. He's, after 400 years, He's come to deliver us. We believe it. And then boom. God doesn't want it to, to just uh, bury in the dirt in our, our optimism or our faith to be that fragile. He wants, to teach, wants us to learn to trust Him. Let's say He burdened your heart. Tomorrow's going to be a new day. He's been dealing with you about witnessing. And you say, today's the day. And you have an excitement. You're just floating on the clouds. You want to share the gospel with somebody, and you do, and they curse you out. 
I mean, literally curse you out. You've been cursed out for sharing the gospel with somebody, uh, or, or you know, just ridiculed or mocked. Well, the apostles and all the early church, they were. They were scattered and they were persecuted and they were ridiculed and mocked. They were the off-scourging of the earth. They were made a spectacle of the whole earth. Uh, and so God says, okay. You know, and we think, well, Lord, that was pretty cruel of you to, to, to get me all excited. I'm finally going out to witness and this is how I was received. Remember, He's sending you out for his, his, Himself. He's sending us out for His glory. People may be saved. They may not be saved. Maybe a thousand people are going to be saved through your one-on-one -on -one witnessing in the days ahead. But He's going to test you early on to see are you going to do it? Are you going to do it trusting in Me? Are you going to do it by faith? Are you going to do it and wipe the spit off your face when somebody spits on you? Are you going to get up and go back and do it again? Because that's who I'm looking for. That's what I'm going to make you if you'll trust Me. And so the retreat is always back to God, right? In other words, Moses is rejected by Pharaoh. He goes to the Lord. That became a pattern in his life. It was not the pattern of the Israelites' life as a whole, okay? It was the pattern of Moses' life. And it became a wonderful pattern. And we can learn from that. Always retreating back to the Lord. And so God give, gives this promise that we just read and look at how many times it says what He's going to do. I just want to have it written down here. We have to fall back on the promises of God. I would say probably more times we're facing adversity than not. I'm not going to uh, come up with some factual thing to back that up. Just in life. Okay? In life. I would say more often in life you're facing some kind of severe adversity or trial probably more often than you're having a perfect day, week, month, year. Maybe that's not the case for everybody. But there is a rest, amen, that remains for the people of God. We have to fall back upon the Lord. He's teaching us that. There's one thing He's teaching us through our trials. So they're, they're not just a waste. I went through a trial and it was just a wasted trial. I know I preached a sermon on that many years ago. Don't waste your trials. I've wasted plenty of them. A lot of good trials came my way that I could have learned from. And often I didn't. I want to learn from them. So I don't have to repeat kindergarten. I can move on to first grade or second grade or whatever it may be. And so we have to fall back and retreat to the Lord. He's our refuge. Did He promise to bring the children of Israel out? Yes. So what do we do? We fall back on that promise if we're Moses. Is He not the Lord Jehovah who keeps His covenant with His children Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Is He or is He not? We fall back on the truth. Same thing for our life. There's no difference between you and me and Moses in that sense. None. We fall back upon the Lord. We fall back on the promises of God. And when we get back to the promises of God, we lay hold on it. We lay hold on the promises of God not things we wish and hope and wish it could be this way and wish there was world peace and wish there was this. But things that He has promised and He has spoken to His children, to us as His blood-bought church, to your life specifically, things that He's spoken to your life, we lay hold on it and we don't let go. And we ask God, help me not to let go. 
and we learn to trust. Here's what the Lord reassured Moses of. He's discouraged. God didn't let the people go initially. Uh, he goes back all, and, and the Lord says, I'm Jehovah. That, that speaks of his unchangeable nature. I will bring you out. This is quoted from what we read. This is what the Lord says I'll do. I'll bring you out. I'll rid you. I will redeem you. I will take you to me. I will be to you a God. I will bring you into the land. I will give it you. And he ends it by saying, I am the Lord in verse 6 and in verse 8, I am the Lord. What is he teaching us, y'all? What is he teaching Moses? What is he teaching us? He's God. He's got it. He doesn't work by my clock and my calendar and my timetable. He does not work in the ways that I think they should, that He should. He works in His own mysterious ways. His ways are not our ways, but His ways are marvelous. And I'm glad His ways are His ways. And when I look back, I'm glad that He did it His way. I'm glad that He did it His way. I'm glad that I went through the valley and God held my hand or held me and carried me. I'm glad that I went through the valley and learned to trust God. I'm glad that it was His way. You know, it's not like just who wants lifestyles of the rich and famous, this show that used to come on 20 years ago or whatever, and you watch them on TV and every little thing you could possibly want to buy or have, these wealthy people, they were interviewing wealthy people and showing all the luxury that they lived in. Life is not that way. But we have something far better. Hanging on to the Lord Jesus Christ and seeing what He's doing in our lives and for us and through us. And so uh, God is, has called Moses to do this and He's going to have to trust Him and He's going to have to do it. You're not through. You're going back to Pharaoh again. You're going to go back to him again. You're going to go. He didn't tell him how many times he would go. He didn't tell him how many plagues there would be. He didn't tell him how many times Pharaoh would reject him. He says, go and do what I tell you to do. When it all was over, they came out though, right? I keep saying that every Wednesday. I probably will continue to. Because looking at it from his firsthand experience, there was a lot he didn't know other than God says, I'm the Lord. I'm going to bring you out. I'm going to redeem you. I'll bring you to the land. Do what I tell you to do, Moses. And so obedience, God always links, links obedience to the promise. He links the two. It's not enough that He made a promise. If He makes a promise to you, He's going to give you something to do to walk in it, to hang on to it, to believe Him for it, to not throw it, uh, away your confidence, but to hold on to the Lord because He made me this promise. It's going to come to pass. I'm not going to cast in my... My, my confidence. I'm not going to throw away my faith in Jesus Christ. I'm not going to start living like I did when I didn't know Jesus, like a lost man, just because the promise is long in coming. He made me a promise. I'm going to hang on to it. That's what He's teaching us. That's what He's... In, in the, the obedience, God links it to the promise. And we need to follow real quickly behind. If He says go, we need to go. If He needs he says stay, we need to stay. You understand what I'm saying? If he says pray and fast, you need to pray and fast. Whatever he's leading us to do. And so, uh, the, Moses says, well, uh, I'm just going to quote, I'm going to read a little bit of the Scriptures. And Moses spake before the Lord, saying, Behold, the children of Israel have not hearkened unto me. How, much, how then shall Pharaoh hear me, who am of uncircumcised lips? 
But he was, he was kind of objecting a little bit and saying, well, my own, own people don't believe me anymore and haven't listened. Uh, you know, Pharaoh's certainly not going to listen to me. Like I said, he, he went, he, the serpent, his rod turned into a serpent. But you know how Satan works. Uh, this is one of the ways that Satan works anyway. When Moses did that, and his serpent, the God did it, the rod turned into a serpent, the magicians were right on hand. To me, they just represent Satan's little minions, okay? The mockers, the scoffers, the adversary, the enemy. And hey, look, we can do that too. Your God's nothing special. They had to mimic it. They had to just try to... I don't know how it was done. We've talked about in our Sunday school class. There is a, a supernatural power to, to Satan and it's going to be displayed through the, the false prophet and antichrist and so forth. But what it did, it, it kind of neutralized. It shouldn't have, but it's sort of whatever effect that should have had on Pharaoh, it was kind of negated because, hey, the magicians can do that too. Maybe at first he was... Oh, you know, that was amazing. And then the magicians did it too. And he's like, this is just a little trick. This is just whatever it was. We talked last week about uh, God hardening Pharaoh's heart. It was already bent towards hardening. It was already hard towards the Lord. So we talked about that. But one of the things I want to talk about tonight, I guess what I want to spend the time on tonight, we're going to look at the first four plagues. And I want us to see God's mercy even in the plagues. You would think, well, how's that merciful? You know, the water's turning to blood. And all the, the different things, just the first four that we're going to look at tonight. How is that merciful? And yet it was very merciful what God did. Uh, he, there's always mercy with the Lord. And remember last week we talked about Pharaoh. He's just a human being. He thought of himself as a deity. He thought that the Nile River existed for him and all of Egypt existed for him. And he's not, who is the Lord? I don't know the Lord. I'm not, who, who's the Lord that I should obey him? Well, he's, the, he's your creator. He's the creator of the heavens and earth. You should obey him. You know what I mean? But there's this arrogance and he's, he's puffed up. And so when Jesus shed his blood, let me ask you this. Was that, did that include, and I know Pharaoh lived before that, but in the cross, and in God's plan of redemption, promised from the foundation of the world, was Pharaoh included in that? In other words, was that propitiation for his sins as well? Was, that, was God merciful to him? Was God extending mercy to him? Was it possible that this man could have been saved as well? I believe without question. I want to read one scripture. Turn with me if you would. It's worth reading in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. That almost sounds a little strange. He's the Savior of all men, but all men aren't saved. But it is important that we know He is the Savior of all men. Does that make sense? There's no other Savior. And if they're going to be saved, He's the Savior of all men. He is the Savior of all men, especially to those that believe where they actually are saved. But He is the Savior of all men. 
I think that's a good verse to see that. And Paul also says, who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. He will have what's God's will. His will is for all to be saved, including Pharaoh. So through the plagues, God is still extending mercy to Pharaoh. He's still extending mercy to Egypt. He could have just snapped his fingers. We saw it with other kings of Israel and enemies that were instantly wiped out and things like that. And they're going to be, and the Egyptian army is going to be at least wiped out uh, not, not too long from now. I thought it was interesting in my study. I don't know this and there, I don't know that there's a historical record, but the whole confrontation between Moses, the first time he went to him to the time they came out on the Passover was a matter of months. Some, some Bible scholars think it was about nine to ten months. I didn't know if it was a matter of days, a matter of weeks. I really don't know. And I'm not sure where they, they get their information from. If you come up with something on that, let me know. I'd, I'd be interested to know. But God was merciful. And so what God is setting out to do through these plagues, He's got a purpose in it, right? He's not, the Lord's not sitting back on some lazy boy just, okay, go do this. And then you know, give, give me, let me get back to what I was doing over here. Moses, go do this to Egypt. You know what I'm saying? He's thoughtful. He's, he's, he's got a purpose in the plagues. We're going to look at some of this. What is God saying and doing to Egypt and to Pharaoh and about Himself through these plagues? And how is He still being merciful? And, and I believe that what God is setting out to do is to honestly answer Pharaoh's questions. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? that I should obey His voice. Okay? I know not the Lord. That was His question. Who is the Lord, Moses, that I should obey His voice? You know what God's setting out to do? He said not to answer that question. He's taking time. He's taking thought. He's setting out to answer this man in his arrogance who looks at himself as a deity. And not only him, but all of his people look at him as a deity. And they have other priests and other gods that they worship as well. Who is the Lord that I should obey His voice? I know not the Lord. And the Lord is going to say, I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you. Okay? Who I am. And so, uh, remember when Paul went to Athens and he was grieved because he saw the whole city given to idolatry? I mean, we study in school. I don't know why in the world we have to study Greek mythology. What does that have to do with anything in life? But we study it still. Greek mythology. We look at these Roman gods and these Greek gods and we know their little stories and made up little stories about them. Well, this he was living, Paul was living in, in that time. And he goes to Athens, which was the, the, the hub of all this kind of stuff going on. And then he's brought to the place where all the, the speakers and the philosophers go speak about all this stuff. But he walked into town, he says he was given to uh, his grief because he saw the whole city given to idolatry and he noticed one marker or monument with all the other gods, to the unknown God. Okay? Well, Paul set up in Mars Hill and began to declare unto them, this is the unknown God. 
Although He's not far from any of us, for in Him we live and move and have our very, very being. He's not a God that was made with hands. And Paul begins to preach the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And when he got to the part about Jesus, the Son of God, dying on the cross and rising again in power, they began to mock and ridicule. But guess what? Some believed. And some clung to Him. And so, uh, he set out... He didn't ridicule the people so much and just berate them. He did say you're too superstitious, but he did set out, I'm going to answer the question of the unknown God. And that's kind of like what the Lord's doing through Moses uh, to Pharaoh. I believe it's kind of God to begin to display his power in steps and in increments. And then after he displays it, say, Pharaoh, will you let the people go now? And then display some more power. And it gets to a point, we're going to look at it tonight, gets to a point where the, the magicians cannot duplicate what the Lord did. And it's the last one we'll look at tonight. And even they said, this must be the finger of God. Even the magicians, dark and wicked and given over to all, who knows what kind of dark powers, even they're saying, this must be the finger of who? God. Almighty God. I think it's very merciful of God, very kind of the Lord to do this. And so, uh, who is Jehovah? And then we see the, the plagues. What's the first plague? Y'all know? The water's turning to blood, starting at the mighty Nile River. So here comes Pharaoh and his entourage, maybe some priests with him. We don't know exactly, was he going there to bathe? Was he going there to do some kind of ceremonial cleansing? They're very, they were actually very clean people. All right, meticulously so. And so he's going there. Maybe he's going to offer some offering. But any, anyway, when he gets there, Moses is there. And the Lord, of the God of the Hebrews, hath sent me unto thee, saying, let my people go that we may serve, they may serve me in the wilderness. In this thou shalt know that I am the Lord. So he's wanting Pharaoh to know he's the Lord. And so what happens? He, he rejects. He doesn't listen. In this, he, he'll know. And so they, they touch the waters and the waters turn to blood. And the Bible says that all the fountains and all the, the rivers and all the uh, cisterns or little water holding containers that people had, maybe even in their own homes or out in their yards, all of it in the land turned to blood. The only place they could find any fresh water was to dig little shallow little holes in the ground and hit some kind of brackish kind of muddy water or whatever. And they could find that enough to drink. So God was merciful and didn't, they didn't all die from this. But in some way, the magicians did smoke some water and it turned to blood as well. So again, there's a counterfeit. There's a counterfeit mimicking what the Lord is intending to, to bring some type of revelation of Himself to Pharaoh. And the Egyptians are there to kind of thwart that, the magicians, all right? And so they do the, the same kind of thing. And He said, what's going to happen is the water's going to turn to blood. Now, blood is not... I mean, thank the Lord for blood, right? The life is in the blood, in our bodies. But water turning to blood would be nasty, Okay? Everything, all the fish died. They floated to the top. 
They begin to stink. The whole land began to stink. And this brought a judgment on at least two of the gods of Egypt right here, showing his power. Remember, the Nile River, supposedly in the Egyptian religion, there was this goddess, I don't know her name, who out of a big urn of water, she poured out the Nile River and it flowed. Well, Jehovah turned it to blood. It wasn't the goddess that did it. It came at the Lord's command and at His bidding. And also the, the fish were something that, that the people lived off of. I mean, that's what they ate. And so it was a, it, and He's going to bring judgment on another god. So that did nothing as far... It says that He did not set His heart to it. In Exodus 7. In other words, when it happened... Pharaoh didn't set his heart to this like, this is really God speaking to me. When the, when the magicians mimicked it, it says that Pharaoh did not set his heart to it. So it did not have the effect that God wanted it to have. So we talked about how is God hardening Pharaoh's heart? Is he not giving him a choice at all? I believe he's giving him a choice. And every one of these miracles that should break the man or reveal this mighty God to him, he is rejecting what he should receive. And when we reject what we should receive as far as a revelation from God, our heart is absolutely going to be hardened. Remember we said the same sun which uh, melts wax, hardens clay? Same sun, same God. And it depends on the heart of man. And so he rejects. But there is, he does notice there's a power greater than the goddess of the Nile River, right? So the, what's the next plague that comes? Frogs. That's weird, okay? But frogs were actually an object of worship. They didn't worship everything like Hindu, you know, pantheism where everything's God. But they, they did have their idols and the frogs were one of their idols, okay? And it was actually a symbol of fertility, uh, the goddess of fertility that multiply a bunch of offspring kind of thing. And they worship the frogs. And so here they, they, they smite the waters and these frogs come up out of the river. Not just like 20 or 30 or 100 or a few hundred. They come up out of the river and they fill the land. You couldn't step outside of your house without squishing them under your feet. Okay? Squashing fro frogs under your bare feet or your sandals. And they're croaking. They're doing the croaking that frogs do. And they're in people's houses. And the Bible says they're in their ovens when they go to cook. They're in their kneading troughs where they would get the, uh, the flour prepared to make bread. It was, it was nasty. Okay? These frogs are everywhere. And somehow or another, the magicians did the same thing with their enchantments and caused frogs to come up out of, out of the river. And again, so Pharaoh does not, he says, I will not let the people go. But you know what he does say? Now they're starting to see a little bit of response from Pharaoh. When it comes to the Passover and the firstborn are going to die, we're going to read about it eventually. He's going to say go. All right? But there is a little chink in the armor, a little break, and you know what he does? He calls when the frogs come up and the whole land is covered with them. 
and they're in their houses and bed chambers and the palaces of the kings and everywhere. Uh, he calls for Moses to come back and said, entreat the Lord that the frogs be removed. So now he's asking him, you call upon your God. Did he call on his magicians to do that? He didn't call on his magicians and say, rid the land of the frogs. It's enough. This is sick. I hate them. I want to get rid of these frogs. You magicians, rid the land. He did not call the magicians to do that. And one, one commentary I was reading made a good point. Satan has no interest in relieving suffering. Only bringing suffering. Magicians either couldn't, couldn't rid the land of the frogs. He calls Moses, one man with a staff in his hand. Entreat your God that the frogs be removed. And so he says, okay, I, I will, but promise me. First he says, I will. Then he says, but promise me you won't deal deceitfully with me and you'll let the people go. He says, I will let the people go. But, and Moses cried unto the Lord and the Lord did according to the word of Moses. But he says, I'm only going to let them go so far. Not three days, that's too far. We might not get you back if we let. And so he changes the rules after the frogs are gone. We'll let you go just a little ways. And Moses said, no, that's not what God is requiring. God is saying, let us go three days journey into the wilderness. Okay, so this next plague comes. If, if the first one had worked, there wouldn't have been a need for the second one. Just remember that as well. The mercy of God. He didn't start with the most severe and just kill everybody. Even the Egyptian people are witnessing to this, witnessing this right? They worship the goddess of the Nile and so forth. And they're seeing all this take place. What comes next is the lice. Okay? You know what lice are? These tiny little parasite kind of creatures. And they... Moses says the dust, he smote the dust and the dust. Now you imagine a place like Egypt, there's a lot of dust. Dry and barren and desert kind of climate. And, oh, and the dust became lice. And the lice was on everybody. And it says it, the lice, there was lice in man and in beast. And so the animals were covered. In every little temple that was around. And Egypt was dotted with temples to their different gods. Everyone had a sacred bull or goat. And these bulls and goats were had their little, you know, almost like the mascot for the that temple. And the priests would keep it meticulously clean. I mean, like cleaner than a pet you would have living in your house. They were polishing the fur and the and skin and everything and making them clean. But those things that were worshipped and objects of worship were covered with lice. And the priest, the priest would bathe themselves continually. I was just reading a little bit about them. And they would shave themselves continually. Just so, this was before any of this happened. That's how clean they were. They would just want to be shaved and clean and just like perfect. Okay? No dirt, uh, you know, collecting on my hairs, on my head or or my body or anything or my legs, always bathing, always shaving and clean. And now they're covered in lice. And they're miserable. Okay? And the Egyptian magicians, it says they could not. Let's read this in Exodus 8, 18 and 19. 
And the magicians did so with their enchantments to bring forth lights, but they could not. It doesn't tell us why. I've heard some theories. So there were lice upon man and upon beast. Then the magician said unto Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. So we're seeing the progression. We're seeing the hardening of the heart. We're seeing the different plagues that come. I've heard possibly, and it, it makes sense to me, that the reason that the magicians could not mimic this or perform this same miracle, turning dust into lice, basically, that they couldn't give life like that. They couldn't take something inanimate. You know, man is formed from the dust. God formed man out of the dust of the earth and breathed in his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. God quickens us. He gives life. He is the life, okay? But the devil came to steal, kill, and destroy. So up until now, I don't know how, okay? But he was mimicking, through those magicians, mimicking the different things. Calling frogs out of the water is not the same as creating a frog, okay? And so now the dust becomes lice, and they, they tried to do it, and they could not do it. And, and they said, this is, this is the finger of God. This is the hand of God. But, mo- but he hardened his heart. It's interesting that even the people that were in darkness and far from the Lord, like these magicians, they recognized the Lord. Sometimes, sometimes a witness can come from the most the strangest places, you know, the one actually speaking the truth. <clears throat> Here they're saying, doesn't mean that they repented and wanted to serve God or anything like that, these magicians, but they did recognize and say, this is the hand of God that's doing this. And so uh, they urged, they told Pharaoh, there's a power you know, stronger than, than our power. We'll tell you that much that's going on. This is the Lord. And so there's one more plague that we're going to look at tonight. And that was the plague of the flies. If we're in chapter 8, let's look at verse 21. Else if thou wilt not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies upon thee and upon thy servants and upon thy people and into thy houses. And the house of, houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms of flies and also the ground wherein they, whereon they are. And I will sever... Now this is something interesting. Now we're going to close with this. And I will sever in that day the land of Goshen in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall, flies shall be there to the end that thou mayest know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. And I will put a division between my people and thy people. Tomorrow shall this sign be. And the Lord did so. And there came a grievous swarm of flies into the house of Pharaoh. He mentions him first. And into the servants, his servants' houses. And into all the land of Egypt. And the land was corrupted by reason of the swarm of the flies. Now, This is the last plague we'll look at. But he was saying, I'm going to do this. So it's a prophecy. I'm going to do this tomorrow. By this you will know. The prophecies of God, through the true prophets of God, have been so that we will know that He is God. He He gives prophecies for a reason. It's not a neat little trick that God can do and tell you what's going to happen tomorrow. It is 
to show that He is God and He's Alpha and Omega. And He is in Almighty God and He holds all of creation in His hand. And He's not limited by time. And He calls things that are not as though they were. And we read about it in Isaiah. He says, so that you will know. I'm telling you this before. He says in Isaiah, so that when it comes to pass, you'll know that I'm God. He gives it for a reason. He gives prophecies for a reason. And I would say the nation of Israel and Jesus Christ in His first coming and then now His second coming are the most, uh, the major themes of prophecy in the Scriptures. Israel, the promises to Israel, how they'll be scattered, how they'll be regathered and so forth. And then the coming of Messiah. I've heard, this is not a study on prophecy tonight, but there are 66 major prophecies concerning the first coming of Jesus Christ. I have them printed out. It's really neat. Maybe one day we'll look at some of that. It has the prophecy in the Old Testament where it was given, and then it has where it was fulfilled in the New Testament. I'm talking about His first coming. Okay? Uh, born of a virgin, and then uh, born in Bethlehem, and hung between two thieves, and uh, he'll be pierced in his side. Everything about him. He'll be called the Nazarene. Uh, he'll, he'll, I'll call him out of Egypt. And all of that is fulfilled in Christ's first coming. But it ought to have the effect upon men. If we have any kind of humility or, or just being reasonable to say, this is, like the magicians, this is the Lord. Okay? This is the Lord. And... So he says this is going to happen. And the flies come. And the flies are on everything. On the ground even. Again, that would be not pleasant. Everything's covered in flies. They're dirty. Okay? And they carry diseases. and Or sicknesses. Whatever. I don't know if they carry diseases. but And they're, they're covering the ground. And people are walking on. They're stepping on. They're in Pharaoh's palace. And they're in your bedroom. And they're going up your nose. And, you know, when you breathe. And... They're just all over the place. And he says, but I'm going to set, and I'm told, he told him this beforehand, I am going to sever, there's a difference between my people. And they weren't even following God like they should. They were still his people, amen? Between my people that dwelt in the land of Goshen. Why did they dwell in Goshen? Because that was a place that was good for cattle and for sheep. And that's what Jacob, when they originally came in, uh, you know, your, your servants were shepherds. And we want to dwell on that side. There was a lot of good water and grass for the cows. But they lived in that area. Now, he might have come and worked in other places in Egypt, but they lived there. And God sends swarms here, and there was like a line drawn, and no flat swarms of flies here. God is in control. And He is in control of your life and my life. And He can take care of His own. And... It just, it just to me shows the, the mercy of God through these plagues. He wasn't just some cruel thing like, let me show you what I can do. He, he was given prophecies. He was showing His power. He was bringing, bringing judgment on some of the idols of Egypt in the process. And He would give them another chance, let my people go. If you don't, here's what's going to happen. And, and yet, He just continued to harden His heart. Amen? And so I just want to, uh, to close by, by reading this because one, one thing we do learn, and we didn't talk about it a lot tonight, was that Moses had to trust the Lord in this. 
The Bible, we, we started our study of Moses in Hebrews. Because in Hebrews it says, by faith Moses, right? Refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than, than to endure the pleasures of sin for a season. And so his faith grew. And he had to trust God. And y'all, you and I, if you're going to be called to anything worthwhile in your life, and it's going to call us to something worthwhile in our lives, then we're going, we're going to have to learn to trust the Lord. We're going to have to learn to take rejection. We're going to have to learn to take uh, discouragement and hindrances and what appears to be roadblocks, what, what appears to be sometimes insurmountable blocks. Well, I guess this is it. You know what I mean? That there's, there's no... There's no going forward now. I thought I was in God's will, but there's no getting past this. Isn't that what the disciples said on the morning of their resurrection? We thought He was going to be the Savior of the world, the Messiah. We thought He was going to be Him that was promised He was going to rule Israel and be our deliverer. And Jesus was right there with them, risen from the dead, and they didn't know it. He wants us to trust Him. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Get to know the Lord. Walk closely with the Lord. Make sure that you're in His will and in, in His plan. And when you know that you're in His will and His plan, then hang on. And don't let the discouragements discourage you. It's natural to be discouraged. We get discouraged. I would say don't live in discouragement though. Learn and learn to do it more quickly than you do now. To come to the Lord. And he, he doesn't get fed up with us. I'm just closing with this. Indeed, you can come. He, he doesn't get fed up with us to the point where he says, you know what, Moses? I promised you what I was going to do and, and you're doubting me now. I'm going to find somebody that doesn't doubt me. Or you got discouraged and I encouraged you once even after the initial burning bush and you still are discouraged again so I'm done with you. He is patient. We're patient with our children. Okay, sometimes we lose our patience, but honestly, we're pretty patient with our children. And we're going to think that God's not. We're going to think somehow we're better than God. We can go to the Lord. We can ask Him the same question we asked Him before. Gideon said, Lord, you know the story. Let it be wet on the fleece and dry on the ground, dry on the ground. I mean, dry on the fleece, wet on the ground. And God did it for him. We can say we shouldn't have doubted, and maybe he shouldn't have. But the point is, he did doubt, and God dealt with his doubt and unbelief patiently and gave him what he required, and that's what was enough. The second time for Gideon was enough, and he went and did what God called him to do. Maybe it takes three times for you. Maybe it takes ten times for me. But I can promise you, we know that we're in God's will. Lay hold on it. Go to the Lord. Don't go from the Lord. Don't say, well, I must have missed God. This must not have been His plan. The door closed. The door closed. We looked at four plagues tonight. After every one of the four plagues, the door was closed. So still nothing's happened. They had our initial meeting, then four plagues. That's five. And still the door's closed and the people aren't out yet. And they're laboring under more severe burdens than they ever had before. But the door's getting ready to open. Isn't that exciting? Isn't that exciting? Whatever He's promised in our lives, He's going to do it. He's a good God. He's teaching us something. 
Let him teach you that tonight. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name.